I heard a story about a couple who was on a 40th wedding anniversary trip. They were on a cruise in the Caribbean. And late one night, they were out on the top deck, just kind of taking it all in and, and talking, when out of nowhere, this fairy just popped up and appeared and, and said to them, well, I, you know, I've been watching you guys and uh, just watching your love for each other and your loyalty to each other and your faithfulness. I've been watching you for the last four decades, and tonight I'm here to give you a 40th anniversary present. I want to grant each of you a very special wish, whatever it is that you want. And the woman knew immediately what she wanted. She asked for an around-the-trip, around-the-world trip with her husband, because you know women tend to be a little bit less selfish sometimes. And so she uh, asked for this incredible trip around the world with her husband. And immediately in the blink of an eye, she had uh, airplane tickets in her hand and hotel accommodations and even spending money for the whole trip. And she's just overwhelmed with joy and excitement for this upcoming trip that they're going to get to take around the world. And her husband looked at her and her wish being granted, and he knew immediately what he wanted. He wished for a female companion some 30 years younger And in an instant, he turned 90. (laughs) Moral of the story is be careful what you ask for, right? And I think about that moral as I think about the story that we're going to look at today. We've been in a series, as you can see, called When God Asks the Questions. And really, we've been walking through Scripture to look at some of the questions that God asks of human beings Throughout, uh, throughout God's Word, throughout Scripture. So far in this series, for the last four weeks, obviously gone last week, I do appreciate John O'Keefe filling in. I uh, heard he did a, an excellent job, and I'm so thankful that we can uh, tap into different men who can preach. And, uh, but for the last four weeks, we've been looking at Old Testament questions. We've been looking at some of the questions that God asked in the Old Testament of, uh, of different people. And so this week we're kind of going to turn the page a little bit. And so we're going to do four weeks in the Old Testament, and then we're going to flip over and do four weeks in the New Testament. And we're going to look at some questions that Jesus, God's Son, asks of people in the New Testament. And the question we're going to look at this morning uh, is found in the midst of a story that we find in John chapter 8. So you can go ahead and turn there with me if you would. Or you can follow along on the screen. We're going to pick up the story in verse 2. So John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This scene in John chapter 8 is really a, in many ways, a continuation of what is going on in John chapter 7, which tells the story of Jerusalem and the Jews coming together to 
celebrate what was known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day sacred religious festival where basically the people of God celebrated God's grace and provision. And it was during this feast, <clears throat> excuse me, in John chapter 7, that Jesus shows up and begins to teach in the temple courts. And the moment he shows up teaching, the religious leaders became quite unnerved because they remembered all too well the previous time that he had shown up in the temple courts teaching during a religious festival, no less. And quite literally, he turned everything upside down. Go see John chapter 2. And so when Jesus shows up in John chapter 7, the religious leaders decide to take Jesus on and to begin to argue with him as he's teaching. But not surprisingly, they don't fare very well, and they wind up looking quite foolish. And perhaps at some point during the week, they decided, well, if there's no way that we can do him in ourselves, hopefully maybe we can get him to do himself in. And so they decided to try and set Jesus up. But if they were going to set him up in order to take him down, then inevitably that would involve setting someone else up as well. And it's quite ironic to me that on the heels of a feast celebrating the grace of God, the last thing the religious leaders are interested in is offering grace of God. But at any rate, they have their setup, and here she is, publicly exposed, morally and spiritually defiled, caught in the act of adultery, standing in front of everyone. And they use her situation as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. By the way, it makes you wonder where the guy is in all of this. The Old Testament law plainly stated that both were to be punished. She's caught in the act, and yet he's nowhere to be found, quite curious to say the least. Nevertheless, Jesus appears to be in a no-win situation. The Jewish law demands the death penalty for adultery, and yet the Roman Empire that ruled the Middle East at that time really frowned upon anyone except them carrying out death sentences. And so if Jesus says to stone her, they'll probably stone her, and when Rome comes asking questions, they'll then point the finger at Jesus and they'll be rid of this guy. If he says not to stone her, though, they'll point to Jesus as one who is not upholding the Old Testament law and subsequently recognized as a heretic and potentially setting himself up to be stoned as well. They want Jesus to make a decision that's going to seal his fate. And they feel like they've got him between a rock and a hard place because either way he goes they are going to condemn him. And yet they probably never considered just what it was that they were asking for or who it was that they were asking it from. What Jesus scribbled, wrote in the ground is still somewhat of a mystery. But what he said in that moment has been echoed through the centuries. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. It's one of the more oft-quoted scriptures in the Bible, and most of the time we like to quote it when we're the ones caught red-handed, right? <clears throat> and we're seeking to avoid possible punishment or condemnation, and we say this verse as though it means that the only person who has a right to, to punish me or criticize me is someone who is without sin, and since none of us are without sin, then no one really has the right to criticize me, right? And we use it kind of in that context, but that's not exactly what Jesus meant. In the Old Testament law, just to give you a little context, it, it didn't require for someone to be without sin or in a 
perfect or, or absolute sense without sin before they could do things like provide testimony or bring a charge against someone or pr- carry out a sentence against someone. After all, if that was the case, then nobody would ever provide testimony. Nobody would ever bring a charge. Nobody would ever be able to be sentenced because no one is absolutely without sin. And so what Jesus was more than likely referring to was that the accusers or the witnesses be without sin in the matter at hand. At the very least, though, at the matter at hand, the religious leaders were certainly not without sin. For instance, there was favoritism in bringing forth only the woman and not the man. That's just for starters. There were certainly false motives and no doubt entrapment as well. Any of these things would categorize as the religious leaders being malicious witnesses according to the law. And ironically, those things were punishable by stoning as well. And so of all things, the one asking a question, or the ones asking a question about a stoning, were being stonewalled by Jesus himself. And can't you just hear the thud, thud over and over of rocks hitting the ground? What a scene to imagine. The crowd clears, the dust settles until only two remain. The guilty one and the guiltless one. The adulteress and the advocate, the sinner and the Savior, and the only one who's ever truly and absolutely been without sin in every sense of the word, the one who truly could have thrown a stone, instead tosses her a softball of a question. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. That question, has no one condemned you, is the question for all of us today. Because her story is really our story. Maybe not exactly in the details, but just like that woman, for starters, we all stand accused. Every single one of us sitting here stand accused. Maybe you've never been caught red-handed and, and dragged out into public, but we all nonetheless stand accused. The Bible speaks of Satan as a deceiver and an accuser. He leads us astray and then he accuses us before God. Now, Satan cannot steal our salvation, right? But it's through accusation that he keeps some from ever reaching out to take hold of that salvation through Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have experienced salvation in Christ, it's through accusation that Satan can rob us of the joy and the assurance of our salvation I heard a story about a brother and sister who went one summer to live on the farm with their grandmother and grandfather. And one afternoon, the brother, Billy, was messing out around out back behind the house. And he had, had, he had just gotten his first BB gun earlier that year for his birthday. And so he's taking aim and shooting at different things, mostly inanimate objects like cans and uh, you know, bushes and trees and things like that. But he just couldn't help himself. And he just couldn't help but gravitate towards his grandmother's pet duck that she had raised on a small pond on their property. And he just couldn't resist. He shot first, and then he thought about it. And by the time he thought about it, it was too late. He killed the duck. 
Well, his sister Sally saw the whole thing. So, of course, you know she's going to hold it over his head. And she was quick to let him know that she was going to hold, hold it over his head. And he begged her, please don't say anything to Grandma. Well, later that evening, they sat down for dinner. And after dinner was finished, Grandma said, okay, Sally, it's time for you to clean up the kitchen. And then Sally immediately said to her grandmother, she said, well, Billy wants to do it. He shot her a stunned look back, and she leaned over and whispered in his ear, remember the duck. Billy immediately volunteered to clean the kitchen, and every time Sally had a chore that she didn't want to do, she would just gently remind Billy, remember the duck, remember the duck, and Billy would quickly go off and do her chores. Well, after a few days, Billy had just had enough. You know, we we all reach our breaking points at some time, and so he finally just broke down, and he said, I'm just going to confess, and he did. He laid it all out for Grandma. He said, "I'm, I'm so sorry. I killed your duck, and Grandma said, oh, honey, I know. I saw the whole thing happen from the kitchen window. I was just wondering how long you were going to allow your sister to make a slave out of you before coming to me. And I think all of us can relate to that story. Children aren't the only ones to whom accusation and shame can make a slave out of. Accusation and shame can work on all of us in so many deep and complex ways. We all know what it is to go on a guilt trip with Satan in the driver's seat. But not only like that woman do we all stand accused, but here's the second reality. There's some truth in the accusation. There is some truth in the accusation. Jesus didn't deny that she was in sin. Jesus doesn't doesn't say, you know, you are without sin and and deny what, what it was that she was involved in. He had no intention of defending or excusing her sin. In fact, he doesn't even ask for her side of the story. Even if she had been set up from his vantage point, she still bears responsibility for her part. And he actually concludes the conversation by telling her to leave her life of sin. I think about one man who had just become the new CEO of a particular company, and the outgoing CEO told him, you're you're going to make mistakes along the way. And when you do, I've put something in your desk to help you that I thought and found was helpful to me that the previous CEO did. In your desk, you will find three envelopes, and they're marked envelope one, envelope two, and envelope three. The first time you make a mistake, I want you to go to your desk, open it up, open up envelope one, read it, and do what it says. Second time you make a mistake, do the same thing with envelope number two. Third time you make a mistake, do the same thing with envelope number three. So the new CEO trusted the old CEO, and he agreed to do so. And the first time wasn't too long into his new job that he made a glaring mistake. And everybody knew that he had made this mistake. And so he went to the desk, he took out the envelope, opened it up, and all the message said was, blame me. And so that's what the CEO did. He blamed the previous CEO. He said, ultimately, my actions were tied to the problems that I inherited from the old CEO. It's primarily his fault. And sure enough, everyone believed him and was able to move forward. And he was doing quite well for some time. A few months passed, and he made another glaring mistake, and everybody knew it. And so he went to his desk and pulled out the second envelope, marked envelope number two. And the message inside said, blame the board. And so that's exactly what he did. He went before everyone, and he said, this is really a product of the mess that the board is in and has been for quite some time. Even before I got here, I inherited these problems, and, it, and so it's the board's 
fault. And sure enough, again, everybody bought it and all went well. And a few more months passed by and he made a third glaring mistake and everybody knew it. And so he went again to the desk and he pulled out envelope number three. And the message inside said, prepare three envelopes. Some of you will get that in a second. Now, there are times when other people are involved in our sins. There are times when, when, when what we're dealing with and, and what we are struggling with can be directly tied to what those around us are dealing and struggling with. There are actions that people have taken. There are impacts that people have had on our lives. But sooner or later, you and I have to deal with the reality and the fact that there's an envelope with our name on it. And we can place the blame here and there, but in the end, it comes down to our choices and our actions. And the role other people play in our lives and our our sins may help explain why we struggle what we struggle with, but it doesn't absolve us or excuse us from personal responsibility when it comes to living the way that God has called us to live. I always say it's a reason, not an excuse. It may explain why you do the things that you do, but it's never an excuse for doing it. Just because Satan is a liar doesn't mean that there's no truth in the accusation. Jesus Christ does not come to argue our innocence or to plead extenuating circumstances. If anything, the reason he came is an acknowledgement of our guilt. So often we want to make excuses for why we do what we do, but it's time we stop making excuses and we start making corrections because there is some truth in the enemy's accusations and there are corrections to be made in our lives. But if those corrections are going to be made in our lives, it's only through the power of the truth beyond those accusations. And the good news is that Jesus has come to stand in between us and our condemnation. Jesus has come to stand in between us and our condemnation. What Jesus does literally with this woman is what he does with each of us. He stands in between her and her accusers, in between her and her condemnation. And the truth is he stands in between the religious leaders and their condemnation as well because he really doesn't condemn them either. What he writes maybe is a, is a, a, a prelude to their own conviction and condemnation, but he doesn't come out right out and say it. It seems as though everybody, in fact, in the story kind of gets off the hook. I mean, where's the justice in all of this? Where's the justice in regard to the religious leaders? Where's the justice in regard to what this woman has done or even the man has done that's nowhere to be found? What's the justice in those things for that matter? And the answer is the justice is literally in the hands of Jesus. In a sense, everybody gets off the hook. Because ultimately, Jesus winds up on the nails. Somebody had to pay the penalty for her adultery and for the religious leader's sins as well, but it wouldn't be her or them. It would be him. And instead of a guilty woman being crushed underneath a pile of rocks of condemnation, Jesus would die on a cross of condemnation. Apostle Paul would later write in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace 
through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. What Jesus did with this woman was a preview of what he would do for all of us on the cross, come in between us and our condemnation and take it upon himself. That's why Jesus says earlier in John chapter 3, verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And why later Paul would write in chapter 8, verse 34, Who, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. This is why John would later write in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. <clears throat> but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. An advocate, as some translations say, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I think John 8 is a visual representation, an illustration of all of these verses that we just read. That Jesus has come to silence the accuser, and he does just that. But not because you're good or I'm good, but because he is. Not because we are innocent, but because he is. Not because we've paid the price, but because he has. And the more we come to understand that we've been set free by him, the more we desire to live completely for him and to leave our lives of sin. So let me close today by asking a few questions. I get four for you in light of Jesus' question to the woman, has no one condemned you? And the first is this, will you let him speak in your defense? <clears throat> I didn't put these on your notes, but I left enough room for you to write these in if you want to. Will you let him speak in your defense? Because the only good defense in facing the accuser is Jesus' defense. Our defense isn't going to cut it. Now, you have the right to defend yourself, right? God's given you a heavenly court-ordered court ordered <laughs> defendant, right? But you have the right to defend yourself. I wouldn't recommend it. I would not recommend it. And so the question is, will you let him speak in your defense? Or will you continue to try and represent yourself, arguing your innocence and pleading extenuating circumstances? Second question, will you allow the words no one to include you? Jesus asks the woman, has no one condemned you? And her response is, no one, sir. And I wonder if she included herself in that. For some of us, the accuser that's hardest to shake is the one that we look at every day in the mirror. And Jesus has come to stand even between us and self-condemnation, whereas some of us need help to see that our defense is insufficient. Others of us need help to see that Jesus's defense is more than efficient. And if what he's done is good enough for God to forgive you. Let me say that again. If what he's done is good enough for God to forgive you, then shouldn't it be good enough for you to forgive you? Third question. Will you help the accused find their defender, 
Jesus Christ? Will you help the accused find their defender, Jesus Christ? What if the religious leaders had brought the woman before Jesus not to stone her, but to forgive her because they truly understood him? There was a promotional campaign done by Mercedes-Benz several years ago uh, in which they were promoting the message that they had decided not to put a patent on a particular safety feature that they had developed for their cars. And while it was noble, they were also kind of propping themselves up, uh, and they had decided to share that, that knowledge, what they had learned and developed with other vehicle manufacturers. But the caption for the ad simply stated, some things in life are too important not to share. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 20 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And here's what we do with that. Because he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. You aren't just reconciled to God for yourself. He has given you a purpose and a mission. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled. To God. And so who are the people in your sphere of influence who desperately need to hear this message? And will you be willing to say, God, use me to help the accused find their defender, Jesus Christ? And then finally, what do you need to leave right now when it comes to sin? I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're dealing with, but none of us are perfect. We've all got skeletons in the closet. Some of us have a garage full. But what is it right now in your life that you need to leave when it comes to sin? In the wake of Jesus not condemning her, he says, go now and leave your life of sin. You see, believing in Christ will lead to some leaving along the way. So what is it that needs to be left behind in your life? Not tomorrow, not next week, today. Right now. I've said this before and I'll say it again. God loves you right where you are and just the way you are, but he loves you far too much to let you stay that way. So what is it that you need to leave behind today? Do it today and step into the wonderful grace and forgiveness of your defender, your Savior, Jesus Christ.